Coming soon to own on video cassette. Y2K front, despite all the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team's debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains, just how many box office records can one movie break? You take the blue pill, the story ends. I see dead people. Malkovich, Malkovich. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy 1999. everybody welcome back to 1999 the year that rock cinema my name is not on the fbi's no fly list because i didn't try to stage a fucking coup against the government last wednesday see that's great jared i'm worried that mine might be because i'm a white man with a beard and i've taken pictures <laughs> on the fourth of july so i'm gonna change my appearance just in case <laughs> my name is jared stossel and my name is andrew tucker and this is the podcast where we do a deep dive of every film from the year 1999, getting down to the core reason of why this was one of the most influential years in all of cinematic history. And hope you appreciated that joke during these absurdly weird times. Uh, I hope everybody's safe. Um, Jared, I don't know how you could possibly make a joke about something serious. And with that in mind, this week's movie is a comedy about mentally challenged people. So <sighs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, Andrew and I are are getting ready to talk about this film. So, this week is Gary Marshall's The Other Sister. Now, before we recorded this episode, and after we had recorded the last episode we did, I had no idea what The Other Sister was. All I knew is that it was a comedy, and it said romantic comedy on like the description that I was looking at. So I thought, okay, fine. And then I watched the trailer... And I texted Andrew at like 10 at night and I was like, um, do you know what the other sister's about? And he's like, oh, no, I don't. And I said, well, here's the trailer for it. And I get a text back that says in all capital letters, dear God. Yeah, I, mm, man, I don't know. This is going to be a, a tough one to get through, I think. Yeah. So this is definitely one of the ones that fell into the not great pile of films from this year right off the bat but uh yeah wow so with that i mean we gotta do it so without further ado let's set the scene fuck <laughs> all right so the other sister was released on February 26, 1999. It was directed by Gary Marshall with a screenplay written by Gary Marshall and Bob Brunner with the story conceived by Marshall and Brunner as well as Alexandra Rose and Blair Richwood. Are According you to, telling me that four people were responsible for creating this? Four people came up with the story for this, yes. Jesus Christ. The brief synopsis of this film. And not one of them was like, hey, maybe we don't? No. Okay. Not, th not that I'm okay. aware of. Give me the synopsis. 
A mentally challenged young woman seeks independence by obtaining her own apartment and attending college while her family plans her sister's wedding. Now, this is the part of the show where I pass it off to Andrew for the rundown. Oh, God. So, please, let's do it. Dear baby Jesus, your diapers, please help me get through this. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus... Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant and so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Let me take a sip of my drink real quick. Okay. <laughs> okay. Remember that people is... were paid to make this film. Okay, go. This is about as ready as I'm going to get. So here we go. And I'm going to do things a little bit differently this week, and I'm going to start by introducing you to the entire Tate family before I go into the plot, because there's a bunch of them, and you need to know them. So here they are. Okay? All right. Okay. First, we've got Carla Tate. She's our main character. She's the mentally disabled young woman in her late teens or early 20s who just wants to be a veterinarian's assistant and get laid. Okay. Yeah. Next, we've got Heather. She's a lesbian, and she has a job. And since this is the late 90s, that's pretty much all the filmmakers thought that we needed to know about her. So there you go. the next sister is Caroline Tate, and she's the quote-unquote normal one because she's straight and not mentally disabled. And really, she only exists as a baseline for us to compare Carla and Heather to throughout the movie. And you kind of get the sense that her parents have treated her the same way, too. So, like, realistically, she gets more fucked over than anyone in this movie just for being, like, the prototypical middle child. Um, if you wanted to, you could replace all the ba-ba-bas from Sweet Caroline with sad trombones. And it would be like, Sweet Caroline... <laughs> and that would be accurate so that's what i was thinking in my head okay so up next the father dr bradley tate who's pretty much the only person in the whole tate family who isn't a complete asshole except for maybe caroline and heather is fine but also she's angry about a lot of stuff but understandably so anyway dr tate he's fine if you choose to overlook his drinking problem that he developed as a result of having a mentally disabled daughter but he's got that under control at the time of the movie starts. Uh, and he actually comes across as pretty progressive, except for the one time when his wife is bitching about having, quote unquote, defective children. And he just casually fires off, quote, they're not drug dealers. They're not axe murderers. They're not Democrats, which is like, <laughs> whoa, wait, what? Where'd that come from? And like, also, I hate to break it to you, dude, but you live in San Francisco and one of your kids is a lesbian. So I don't think you've got three little Ivankas running around, if you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, might want to reevaluate that thought. Finally, we've got the mom, Elizabeth Tate, who is just a complete and total piece of shit. And like, to be fair, she harbors a lot of guilt about feeling overwhelmed by Carla at a young age and sending her away to a special school for children with different abilities, kind of like in X-Men, but also not really. Anyway, Elizabeth yeah, doesn't not, think that Carla not. is capable of doing anything on her own. And she basically exists as a walking billboard that perpetuates all of the various stereotypes that people have about mentally disabled people. So in other words... She's a bitch. Cool. cool. Right. Yeah. So did you think that was a lot to take in, Jared? That because, was a lot to take in. Well, guess what? I haven't even gotten to the fucking plot yet. <laughs> so let me take another sip of my whiskey real quick. Oh, shit. It's gone already. <laughs> we haven't even gotten started. Um, I'm drinking more than Dr. Tate did when Carla left. Anyway, oh let's go. All right. 
A young Carla is too much for her shitty mom and alcoholic dad, so they send her off to live with Professor X and Nightcrawler and everyone else until she is the right age to come home. And the right age could be anywhere between 17 and 24, depending on which website you're getting your info from. But let's say somewhere in the middle, since half this movie is about her trying to get laid, and the movie's problematic enough without her being underage too. So, let's say 22? Okay, that's fair. Okay. I don't know about you, Jared, but I'm feeling 22. <laughs> You're a Taylor Swift fan. You have to laugh at that. When Carly gets home, anyway, when Carly gets home from her special school, she's feeling herself. She's confident. She's well adjusted. She's ready to take on the world. Okay, she's like Kylie Minogue in 1998. But there's one problem: her overly controlling Kellyanne Conway of a mother is not interested (laughs) in nurturing Carla's budding independence. Okay, well, there's really two problems if you count the overwhelming stigma against mentally disabled people in society. But anyway, Carl's mom is hell-bent on keeping her close, almost like the guilt of sending her away as a child is caught up with her or something. Hmm. And she keeps telling Carla no at every chance she gets. But Carla is persistent, and she eventually convinces her family that she is capable of going to her local polytechnic school to earn a diploma and eventually pursue her goal of being a FETS assistant. So we're making some progress, right? Carla goes off to school. She quickly proves that she's capable of handling herself. She helps other students. She pushes a bully down the stairs. She does well in her classes. All kinds of normal human stuff, right? Yeah. How surprising. Not really, though, like if you're clued into how things actually work. But in the movie, Gary Marshall's like, isn't that surprising? And you're supposed to be like, yeah, Gary, it is. They're just like real people. And, like, that's kind of the whole thing they're going for. But anyway, we'll talk about that more later. Just like most students when they go off to college, Carla soon gets distracted from her studies by something far more important, and that is sex. So, Carla meets another mentally disabled student named Daniel McMahon, who most people know as Danny. And one day, when Carla gets out of class early, Danny takes her on a really, really romantic date to the biker bar at the Greyhound station. And while they're there, they drink Coca-Cola, eat free food, and watch some hot Asian chick do pool trick shots. Like, seriously, the camera focuses on this woman for a really disproportionate amount of time for absolutely no reason. It's really weird, but it's also very cool. Anyway, Danny really impresses Carla with his knowledge of the local bus system, which he uses to go see the various university marching bands in the Bay Area, which for some reason includes UCLA, because California is really tiny in the movies. Anyway, the two start to fall in love, and Danny even invites Carla over to his apartment, where he lives alone. They kiss, Mm. and Carla is excited in more ways than one, Jared. Because A, she's starting to realize that if Danny can have this level of independence, she can too. And B, she's sexually excited, which is new and understandably very confusing for her, and honestly, for everybody else the first time you go through that. So, there you go. At first, Carla's parents... Well, mostly her dildo mother, but her parents in general aren't stoked on the idea of her dating someone, mainly because they think someone's trying to take advantage of her. But when they meet Danny and realize that he is also mentally disabled, they're actually pretty accepting, even though he barks at Carla's mom when he meets her. And honestly, I would too. He should have fucking bit her, to be honest. Anyway, Carla and Danny's relationship continues to blossom, which is good, in my opinion, because Carla is a human being and deserves happiness. But it's bad in her mom's opinion, because she looks at Carla like some kind of sentient American girl doll, and she doesn't like that Danny's filling her mind with all these thoughts of independence. (laughs) But nonetheless, after some convincing, Carla is able to convince her father and her witchy ice queen of a mother that she too is capable of having her own apartment, and she moves out. Once Carla's settled in, she has Danny over, and the two start looking up sexual positions in a book. 
Danny, ready to go, brings some glow-in-the-dark condoms over, but Carla insists that they wait for a special occasion, like Thanksgiving, because that will make sex more special for her. It's kind of sweet. And flash forward to Thanksgiving, the two of them are certainly not feeling the tryptophan because they get down to a rousing <laughs> rendition of 76 trombones, which they are playing loud enough for the entire fucking neighborhood to hear. Yeah. Did I mention that this movie is over two hours long? Because it's yeah. fucking long. And there's still so much shit that happens. And, like, you'd think that Carla and Danny's climax would also be the movie's climax, but it's not. So I'm going to try to boil the rest of this down to a few bullet points because this is taking fucking forever. So, rapid round. Ready? Cool. Let's do it. After Carla and Danny fuck, Danny's dad threatens to send him back to Florida. Danny starts drinking, and it doesn't go well. He gets really fucked up at a family event, and he interrupts Caroline's fiancé's engagement speech to profess his love for Carla, which is cute. But he goes a little bit too far and tells everyone that he fucked Carla, which is not cute. And then everybody starts laughing, and Carla hates to be laughed at. Carla and Danny then have a very big, very awkward fight, and Carla calls Danny stupid, which he hates to be called. So they're just digging right at each other's, like, deepest, darkest fears, right? Yeah. Not good. Danny gets on a train to Florida. He's sitting there recounting the plot of The Graduate to this man on the train, which honestly, having ridden Bart for three years is something that does happen. And then somewhere in that discussion, Danny decides that he wants to come back to California, but he fucks up and he leaves his train ticket on the train and he has to hitchhike back to San Francisco in one night, which is not actually possible. But hey, he did it in the movies. So he gets back. He breaks into the church where Caroline is getting married to Jeff as if fucking up their engagement party wasn't enough. And then he starts throwing marshmallows at Carlo. He comes crashing down from the rafters, and mid-wedding, he asks Carla to marry him. And she says yes. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wow, what a great ending. Yeah. But guess what? This fucking movie still isn't over. (laughs) I know. Here's what happens next, okay? So now, Carla asks her mom to help plan her wedding. And just like she's been doing the entire movie, Elizabeth demeans Carla, pushes her aside, and continues to be an awful mother. And Carla's finally like, you know what, mom? Fuck this shit. I've had enough. I'll see you next Tuesday. So Carla plans her wedding on her own, and they actually put together like a pretty sweet little ceremony. And Carla is the only person in her family who's invited Heather's girlfriend to anything. So that's major bonus points. Super accepting. Very nice. Very cute. Very well done moment. However, Carla's mom refuses to go to the wedding. But her dad and the maid Winnie go because they're compassionate human beings who actually understand how to feel love for another person. So they go to the wedding, which is tiny, simple, and quick, but also very heartwarming. And as Carla and Danny are getting ready to walk back down the aisle and leave the church, Carla sees her mom standing there, which makes sense because the only emotion more powerful than love is guilt. So (laughs) the movie ends when a marching band comes marching down the street playing their smash song, 76 Trombones. And it's a very sweet moment. A, because it's Danny's present to Carla, and B, because it's finally the end of this godforsaken movie. God damn it. We did it. Yeah, that was that was something. And I know that I just took up like 13 minutes of your time, but I also saved you two hours and 15 minutes of your time. So there's some mental math there, but I actually did you a favor, believe it or not. Before we talk about the other sister again... We need to talk about a couple things. What if we just talk about those things and then don't talk about the other sister? Is that okay? (laughs) We got to do it. So first, we need to talk about the career of director Gary Marshall and writer Bob Brunner. Okay. So we'll start with Gary Marshall. He's probably one, was probably one of the most well-known creators in television and film. So 
He began his career in the 1960s as a writer at television shows like The Jack Parr Tonight Show, The Lucy Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and many others. His big break came in 1970 when he created the television series The Odd Couple, which ran for 114 episodes until 1975. See, that's crazy. I didn't realize that Timmy Turner had been on TV for that long. Oh, you're talking about The Odd Couple. Yeah, The Odd not The Odd Parents. I see. Although The Fairly Odd Parents is still on the air. Those are too similar. I actually knew that those were different things, guys. I'm not I'm not that stupid. <laughs> but also, my God, that 114-episode run is nothing compared to the, the behemoth of a television show that Marshall would go on to create in 1975. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes, my cycle humps. Happy Days. The classic American television show ran for 10 years with 255 episodes airing, and it led to the creation of a number of spinoffs, including Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, and Joni Loves Chachi. But we don't talk about that one. Looking at you, Scott Bale. <laughs> Oddly anyway. enough, the only one of those that I actually knew was a spinoff was the one that we don't talk about. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, Laverne and Shirley was a spinoff, and then he's responsible for the career of Robin Williams in a weird way, at least launching it. Um, in film and television, but See, anyway. you teach me things, Jared. This is why I like you. <laughs> so now we need to talk about Bob Brunner, since both of them worked together very frequently. Brunner began working in television in the 70s, collaborating frequently with Marshall, so they were good buddies. And while he worked on a number of Marshall's television productions, like The Odd Couple, Laverne and Shirley, it was happy days where he would actually leave his most well-known contributions. There's three that I'm going to outline. All right, let's hear them. He was responsible for coming up with the nickname Fonzie. Nice. Waka Waka. He, oh, God damn it. See, a different guy different again. Different Fonzie. Uh, he coined the Fonz's catchphrase, sit on it. Also from the Muppets. And he wrote the 1977 season premiere script in which the Fonz goes to Hollywood to break into act into an acting career and he ends up having to jump the shark in a water skiing competition. Yeah, it's kids. kind of like one of the most famous television episodes of all time it's more than just a gif on twitter so apparently though this episode led to a radio personality named john hine and his buddy coining the term quote jump the shark which means a television show that is well past its prime but the joke was kind of on them because the episode had 30 million people watching it um but even so, that has become kind of a... So a lot of people have said the Simpsons have jumped the shark because they're on for 31 seasons. And anyway, you get you get. There's the a difference between jumping the shark and running out of shit to do. Well, that's kind of the what the metaphor is supposed to be. Because they're like, hmm, what do we do now with Happy Days? We send Fonzie to Hollywood. And he, gets, and he has to uh, ride a motorcycle in a water skiing competition. <sighs> okay. Um anything else <laughs> like yeah <laughs> he could uh he could jump over a shark that seemed pretty cool god damn it that's genius all right get it to production yeah so essentially like that so brenner continued to work on television shows at nbc and cbs before executive producing a number of hits like love sydney private benjamin webster and different strokes while brenner stayed mainly in the television world at about this time the early 80s 
Marshall then started to make his way into directing in film, first with the film Young Doctors in Love, which was kind of a spoof of medical television shows and things in 1982. And that eventually led to his first gig as a writer-director, called The Flamingo Kid in 1984, starring Matt Dillon. Prior to 1999, Marshall was actually having a pretty decent run. Here's a few of the films that he had prior to this. So there was Nothing in Common from 1986, which starred Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason in what would be Gleason's final role. Wow. Overboard from 1987, starring Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Beaches, starring Bette Midler in 1988, which is apparently one of the saddest films of all time. Oh, great, because that's exactly what I need right now. I, I affirm this next one to be his at least one of his best films. But in 1990, he released Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. And That's then, a good one. Was that pre-gerbil or post-gerbil? God damn it. Uh, poor Richard Gere. And, poor gerbil. Uh, <laughs> you, I, I researched that. You know that I found out that that's actually not even close to true. Do you know something, Jared? It's more fun to believe. <laughs> it's just like extraterrestrials. It's more fun to just believe. <laughs> the Nazca lines are real. And... There's a chamber beneath Tutankhamun's pyramid that would flood with water and occasionally release these gases, and they would serve like a giant battery. It's more fun to believe that. And then finally, Frankie and Johnny from 1991, which starred Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer, reunited on the big screen for the first time since 1983 when they were in Scarface. Except this was a rom-com, and it had mixed reviews, but it was okay. Are you saying that Scarface wasn't a rom-com? <laughs> uh, in, I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Um, way I he, had, he had a love affair with Coke. That's see, Scarface has two things in common with the other sister. It was a romantic comedy, and it was way, way longer than it needed to be. But the next three films in Marshall's filmography after 1991, including the other sister, showed an incredibly steep decline in quality, and critics and fans alike could not stand these films. So prior to the other sister. Marshall had released these, and I don't know if you've heard of these, but I'm excited to read them to you. One is 1996's Dear God, starring he, Greg... He released Dear God before The Other Sister? He released Dear God before The Other Sister. Okay, because that's what I said after I watched it, so that's interesting. <laughs> so 1996's Dear God, starring Greg Kinnear as a man who accidentally replies to a woman as God, setting off a chain reaction of events around him and his co-workers. I've never seen the film... I read the plot line and it actually seemed kind of like, oh, this might be an interesting kind of movie, but it, it, it did not hit the landing at all. Huh. And 1994's, and I, this is absolutely true, 1994's Exit to Eden, a film featuring Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd as undercover police officers at a BDSM resort known as Eden. I'm sorry, what the fuck did you just say to me? The movie in particular sounds absurd, and it was apparently considered so bad it has a 6% on Rotten Tomatoes, prompting Roger Ebert to give it a half star. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? And Brunner was also a co-writer for that film. So, after these f kind of big failures, Marshall and Brunner were really hoping to score big with this film and another project, 1999's Runaway Bride, but that's for another episode, so we'll talk about Holy shit, man. So they made a movie where Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd were undercover cops at a BDSM resort, and it flopped. And they thought, hmm, the best way to come back from this would be to make a movie about two mentally challenged people 
and make them the butt of the joke for over two hours. Precisely. Oh. This was not a hit for Gary Marshall. This oh, was no. definitely his lowest point. He made great. He's made great films, but he's also made, unfortunately, very bad films. If you're gonna so, make an omelet, you gotta break a few eggs, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So. Jesus Christ. And the last thing I will talk about before passing this off to you, um, before we get into the pitch in the cell and how in God's name this movie ever got made, we need to talk about the portrayal of mental or physical disability in the films. I believe the proper term, because I looked this up beforehand, is intellectual disability. So we'll do my best to add that in when speaking about this. Yeah, there's a few different terms floating around. There are terms that are medically used now that are different from the terms that were medically used when this movie came out. So there's a whole thing related to that on this episode, and we're just going to do our best. And we don't mean anything offensively. We're just trying to use the right terminology. Absolutely, yeah. So we're not, if the word retarded ever comes up in here, it's only when we're using it in a quote to read something. We're not going to refer to somebody who has a mental disability as retarded. That's not not a good way to do things. Um, so we're doing our best. Bear with it. And if there are corrections you have, please email us. We'd love to hear them and make sure everybody's feeling included and good here. So this has been a hot topic in Hollywood for many, many years. Um, in fact, from the late 1980s to the mid 2000s, there were a great deal of quote unquote Oscar bait films that featured characters in a major with a major physical or mental disability. Now is Before- Oscar baiting when you give yourself an Oscar? God damn it. Because what you can do, Jared, is you can sit on your hand for a little while, and then it will feel like someone else is giving you an Oscar. To all those listening, do you remember a few seconds ago when I said, we're just going to do our best? (laughs) So according to a Washington Post article in 2015, one-third of the Best Actor Oscars since 1988 went to actors who played characters that had disabilities, with 59 actors nominated for playing characters with disabilities. Holy shit, that's actually a staggering number. It is. Some of these more well-known films that portray disability on screen have included, and this ranges from people who are disabled within a wheelchair due to an accident to people who have a more serious mental disability. So, these films include Children of a Lesser God, My Left Foot, Rain Man, Born on the Fourth of July, Forrest Gump, I Am Sam, Million Dollar Baby, The Theory of Everything, and Me Before You. But perhaps most infamously is the film that actually makes fun of these actors who are blatantly going out to try to do these roles to gain clout and an Oscar nomination. Tropic Thunder. Andrew and I have both seen Tropic Thunder and have talked well before about how we think it's very funny. But if if you haven't seen it before, we'll give you just a basic rundown of what this is. I did my best to try to describe this. And I will say this. I recognize that Tropic Thunder is not the most PC movie out there. There are several things in that movie that are problematic. However, it's also a funny movie. Yeah. So it's two things at the same time. Yeah. So in this incredibly meta comedy film, a group of actors, each with their own stereotype that mocks the traditional Hollywood system, these actors find themselves trapped in the jungle and in the middle of a real war while on location shooting a, like an Oscar-style war film. Like a Saving Private Ryan, which Essentially. stars Giovanni Ravisi, 
mm-hmm. who is in the other sister. It all comes back <laughs> around, motherfucker. Keep going. <laughs> The movie pokes fun at a number of different stereotypes and caricatures that are present in Hollywood, including the dramatic Oscar bait movie, the slapstick comedy actor turned like, serious actor, yep. the way too into it character actor, among others. The musician turned actor. Yeah, oh yeah, with Al Pacino. One of the actors portrayed by Ben Stiller is seen as being ridiculed in Hollywood for starring in a film called Simple Jack about a mentally disabled farm boy. Stiller appears in character as Simple Jack in a trailer as scenes from the movie unfold in front of the viewer. So basically, it's making fun of actors who try to take on these roles like Rain Man and I Am Sam for the purpose of trying to get an Oscar and look like an experienced actor or actress. Obviously, there's more there than just trying to get an Oscar, but you understand. So with that being said, Tropic Thunder, even though it had good intentions and it was satirizing this, was absolutely lambasted by people who said that this aspect of the film was highly offensive and like andrew said i agree that there are definitely things in this movie that are not pc that there are things that don't work in it but i think overall as a satirical piece i understand absolutely why it would offend people but i also 100 percent. but i also think that there are some very good points that are made in this movie about the Hollywood system. I don't know if that'll get me in trouble, but I feel like it makes a good point about character actors and like, I, I mean, given it, it, it is absurd. It is absurd when Robert Downey Jr. comes out on screen being rolled out in a wheelchair in the hospital with his skin dyed because news reports are saying he's about ready to take on a character acting role in the role of his lifetime. It's like, at that time, how close were we to somebody actually doing that? Like, it's it's it, possible that that happening in Tropic Thunder prevented that from happening for real. Possibly. That's possible. Yeah, what I will say is, uh, as far as the Simple Jack part of that goes... Yes, okay, back. back to the what I will say is that I, I think the Simple Jack thing on the surface seems much more offensive than something like The Other Sister because it is played as a wild caricature absolutely i think the difference is the simple jack thing isn't making fun of mentally disabled people it's making fun of the actors who think it's a good idea to play a mentally disabled person when you are not mentally disabled agreed i think that's the point how effective it is is a different story yeah and how effective it is to different groups of people depending on their background and their own experience is also a different story. I can't speak to that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the difference between that and then something like the other sister yeah. where they're trying to be sincere about it, but at the same time, it feels like the mentally disabled people are actually kind of the butt of the joke. It, you have this thing going on where you have a comedy movie who's taking on a serious topic and kind of making a commentary on it. And then you have a serious drama slash quote-unquote comedy that is sort of making it the reason for the humor. Yeah. And it's like, which one of those things is worse at the end of the day? You know what I mean? Maybe they're both bad. Maybe that's the answer, is that neither of them are a good thing to do, and maybe neither should exist. But at the end of the day, I don't know. I think it's an interesting discussion to talk about like this this idea of, of satire versus trying to take something seriously and completely failing. Yeah, so there's this clip from Tropic Thunder that I want to piece in here. 
and I'm putting this in here because this is one of those things where when you're looking at this movie and it's like completely absurd, it's absolutely ridiculous. But then like beneath like the subtext of the script and the moment when they're in the jungle and he's telling him why, why his role went wrong. He's telling him why Robert Downey Jr.'s character is explaining to Ben Stiller's character why Simple Jack was not a success at the box office. And, wh- and why it wasn't a good idea and why people are laughing at him. So, we again, we don't endorse the use of the word retard. This is what the film said and used in its script and decided to use. But we're playing it because the context of it in the grand scheme of the film and what we're talking about is interesting. So, take a look. In a weird way, it was almost like I had to sort of fool my mind into believing that it wasn't retarded. And by the end of the whole thing i was like wait a minute you know i flushed so much out how am i gonna jump start it up again it's just like yeah yeah, yeah right you was farting in bathtubs laughing your ass off <clears throat> yeah yeah but simple jack thought he was smart or rather didn't think he was retarded so he can't afford to play retarded being a smart actor playing a guy who ain't smart but thinks he is that's tricky hmm tricky is that working with mercury it's high science man it's art form yeah you an artist hmm that's what we do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hats off for going there. Especially knowing not the academy is about that shit. <clears throat> Wait. About what? You're serious? You don't know. <laughs> Everybody knows you never go full retard. What do you mean? Check it out. Dustin Hoffman, Ray Man, look retarded, act retarded. Not retarded. Count two picks, cheated cards. Autistic. Show. Not retarded. You got Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump. Slow, yes, retarded, maybe. Braces on his legs, but he charmed the pants off next to him and he won a ping pong competition. That ain't retarded. And he was a goddamn war hero. Right. You know any retarded war heroes? You went full retard, man. Never go full retard. You don't buy that? That's Sean Penn, 2001, I am saying. Remember? Went full retard. Went home empty handed. And what you have to understand about that clip, too, is that the irony is that you have a guy who is in blackface exactly, telling someone what not to do as an actor because it could be offensive. Yeah. And obviously, everything about that is offensive. Yeah. And people were understandably pissed about it when they watched it, right? Like, But yeah. like at the same time, the, the satirical element of that is like, there's so many layers that and I, and I think this is the problem. There's so many layers to it that, like, when I watched that movie when it came out in, like, 2008, I had no idea that there were layers to that. You know what I mean? I was just like, oh, haha, that's funny, right? Like, thinking about it more in depth, you're just like, holy shit, what, what is wrong with Hollywood where all of these things happen? Yeah, so to go off of your point about Hollywood I feel like there's this, I mean, this would open up a massive conversation, but I feel like there is this huge entitlement in Hollywood as you become an artist and as you become more famous where you feel like you can do whatever character you want. You're an actor. You're this and that. You're you're paid to do this. You know what you're doing, which yep. essentially, and there are amazing people at doing that, but you don't have to play every role. Well, dude, the thing is, like, artistic license, right? Where does that end? It has to end somewhere, 
mm-hmm. right? And is, is that suppression of the art, right? Like, yeah. I th- think about that term artistic license, okay? You also get a driver's license. And if you've proven that you are not responsible enough to drive, the license goes away. Exactly. And I feel like with the artistic license, it's kind of the same thing, right? It's like, yes, you can take risks and you can do things that are outside of the norm, but there's also a boundary that is just like a decent person boundary. Yeah. Right? I, and so I, like with Tropic Thunder, it's it's not a question of like, oh shit, how could Tropic Thunder do this? It's more like, why is this believable to me when yeah. I watch Tropic Thunder? <laughs> That's the bigger problem that we're talking about here. Yeah. But even with what you just said, where he's like, you're like, there's so many layers to this movie. Abs- the first time I watched it, I was way younger and I was like, oh, this is just a funny comedy. I, I wasn't that into film analysis yet. I, w- I hadn't seen as many films now as I have then. Watching it years later, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing for different reasons. Right. I'm laughing right. at like, holy shit, I missed that when I was a teenager and I saw this. Right. And and I, I kind of think like that's part of the problem with the other sister too, right? It's like people watched it back in 1999. They're like, oh, okay, that's pretty good, you know? And then you watch it again now and you're like, holy shit, we've learned so much stuff in the last 22 years that has made this movie so different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so there's even, I mean, going off of this question of like, why does Hollywood keep doing this? Why do you, uh, people go see these films? At least in the 90s, what drew people to go see these films? Now, if anybody said they were going to do something like this, it would be almost shut down immediately. Whether that's a good or bad thing, I, I, I veer on the side that it's probably good if somebody's saying, yeah, this isn't a good idea. Um but there's an article from Forbes that um, a writer named Andrew Polring put together earlier in 2020 that talked about what initially drew audiences to films that showcase people with physical and mental disability. And it breaks down in this section um, what it is that draws people to all this. So the article is pretty lengthy, but the topics they've mentioned are essentially, there's there's three topics they've essentially mentioned. The novelty. Okay. The ability to create big emotions in the audience. So essentially the idea that you're seeing somebody who's going through a bigger challenge than you ever could. Um, physically, mentally, whatever it may be. And the third is social enlightenment or bringing awareness to someone with this particular disability. See, and the first two of those things to me seem insincere and like cutting corners. And the third one feels like kind of the only legitimate reason to do this. So... While these roles can be seen as a gateway for people with disabilities to have representation in films, many people believe that films like these actually, for lack of a better term, mock the disabled. So it has this opposite effect. Critics believe that some of these roles have ended up portraying one stereotype after another. And this criticism, for the most part, makes a lot of sense. In this same Forbes article, a number of these stereotypical roles are laid out. So these are quotes from the article, but these are kind of the... These are kind of the the baseline stereotypes you'd see in a movie about a disabled person. And and this is completely different, but it's also similar to what we talked about with our Trippin episode, right? Which is that representation doesn't actually necessarily like equate to a positive, like a net positive. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so somebody could say, "Yeah, we're going to do a story about this," but then they could completely botch it and it's like, "Well, you just missed the point." So the, 
it's like, yes, on paper, there's a story with a different representation, but you kind of just cut corners to make it just to say, oh, look, we have, we have, but we have this film. See, it's, this is what you want. It's like, no, that's not. Here are these, these stereotypes. One, the angry, bitter wheelchair user who can't get over their lost abilities and lashes out at non-disabled people who are just trying to help. Two, the mythical blind person who sees more than sighted people, which sounds like oh. just such a fucking Hollywood thing. Like, like the soloist. I, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think like the soloist or even Ray or really, just anything Jamie Lee Fox did apparently. Well, <laughs> well, Ray was a biopic, so I understand that. Um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, number three, the childlike and virtuous intellectually disabled character whose innocence and simplicity confers goodness on the others around them. Four, I'm thinking, what is it, like Patch Adams or something? Four, disabled people as either selfish, demanding to be catered to without considering other people's needs, or else self-denying, insisting that friends, family, and lovers, quote, go live their own lives. Tony Soprano's mom. <laughs> And number five is Better Off Dead, in which a disabled person fights for the right to end their life. See Me Before You as an example for this. It, they do follow into those ruts a lot, don't they? Yeah, they, absolutely. I, and as I say this, I can name off pretty much a different movie for every one of these. In this case, where would Carla Tate fall into this conversation? So according to an article from courses.lumenlearning.com, there was actually a case study done about this character. The article is long and rather interesting given that it breaks down the character, but it basically states that Carla meets the specific criteria to be considered as having, quote, mild mental retardation. Remember, this was in the 90s. And that used to the, be the medical term. That used to be the term. It's not anymore. Right. It's now more commonly referred to as intellectual disability due to the use of the word quote-unquote retard as an insult and slur right so that's why it has changed even medically but back in 99 retardation was still the term commonly used in textbooks and stuff so a lot of the info that we're about to talk about including in the quote that we're about to read is going to have the word retardation or retarded in it a lot so sorry in advance in order to meet this qualification one would need to have an iq of 70 or lower it's not specifically stated in the film kind of like how they don't specifically state her age but because she goes to a school for the differently abled, we know that she fits into this category. So this article goes on to talk about the accuracy of the portrayal, saying, quote, The average person watching this movie would automatically be able to diagnose Tate as someone who is mentally retarded. However, many individuals do not understand that different levels of mental retardation exist based on IQ scores. Although mild retardation is the most common level of retardation, accounting for 65-75% to 75 of all diagnoses, most of the population lump all forms of mental retardation together. Another fallacy which might be correct with an everyday person watching this movie is understanding that although mentally retarded individuals are limited in some of their functions, they can become, with supportive help, a very productive member of society. One possible misconception the movie might give viewers is the idea that mentally retarded individuals normally come from a higher SES and often have people to take care of their needs. However, statistically, most people with a mental handicap, especially people with mild retardation, come from a low SES neighborhood. They often become homeless or wards of the state because of lack of specialized training and education. Which, if that didn't cheer you up before this, there you go. Basically, that quote is saying that there are a lot of stereotypes portrayed in the movie 
but that some of them are also a little bit accurate. Yeah. Right? Like, the the character is portrayed reasonably believably is, is essentially the, the boiled-down version of this. But going back to what Jared was talking about a minute ago with kind of the, the several different kind of precast stereotypes that these roles tend to fall into i think that carla most readily falls into the the childlike and virtuous intellectually disabled character whose innocence and simplicity confers goodness on others i thought so too i think she she pretty squarely falls into that stereotypical category especially because it's a, a comedy right we're supposed to see her as kind of this this whimsical and fun character who definitely complicates situations a lot, but does so in a way that's kind of playful and fun. And and so I don't think this movie is innocent of avoiding those pigeonholes. I think it falls squarely into that one. Yeah. And so with all of this being said, like us, you were probably thinking, how the hell did this movie get made? So walked to the pitch in the cell for a little bit. I'll do my best to make sense of how this movie ended up getting made. There's a different podcast that takes care of that better than we do. But hey, guess what? Yes. This week, it's us. So here <laughs> we go. For starters, The Other Sister was written as a spec script. And we've talked about what a spec script is before. But basically, it's a script that is not commissioned by a studio. It's one that the writer just chooses to sit down and write for the hell of it. Okay? Yeah. We caught up. Caught up. Let's move on. The moral of the story is that nobody asked for this movie, (laughs) which might not be that much of a surprise to you. Uh, But Marshall and Brunner decided to go ahead and try writing it anyway, because that's what you do. So there was actually an extensive interview conducted with them about their collaborative process in Creative Screenwriting Volume 6. And Marshall and Brunner talked about how the script for The Other Sister came to be. Because like any good interviewer, this person was like, how the fuck did this movie happen, dude? The interviewer asked Marshall if his background in journalism helped him with having a, quote, nose-to-the-grindstone attitude when it came to writing in Hollywood and having to hustle. And here's what Marshall had to say. Quote, No question about it. Those were damn good years. We sat together and we saw men come in drunk, people typing lines and creating under pressure. Pressure, deadlines, and no walking around looking at the moon. If you're serious, you sit there and write, come three o'clock, and you gotta hand in the jokes. With a lot of writing teams, you can have somebody who writes and somebody who hustles. I always had other guys hustling. I didn't hustle so good. That's why we wrote The Other Sister on spec. Yeah, that's why. (laughs) Anyway, quote continues, We couldn't sell it to anybody because we didn't pitch it in ourselves very well. No shit. Once we got it on paper, then we sold it. I was about to say, okay, hold on. So you're telling me that you walked into a pitch meeting having made a number of great films and some not-so-great films before that, and you tried to pitch this, and you were surprised when they said, now we're not into it. Right? I mean, think about this, okay? You're talking about making a romantic comedy. You're pitching this to a big movie studio. Here's the romantic comedies that came out in 1998, the year before The Other Sister. There's something about Mary. Rushmore, Night at the Roxbury. The Wedding Singer, Shakespearean Love, Practical Magic, a bunch of really good movies. And then you're going, hey, what if we made a romantic comedy about two intellectually disabled people 
And that was what was funny about it. And the studios were like, you know, I don't think so, man. That doesn't sound like such a good idea. (laughs) And they were like, all right, we'll just write it anyway and show it to you. And they were like, all right, man, more power to you. Go ahead. So anyway, in this interview, Marshall continued, quote, certain stories you can't pitch. Life is beautiful won an Academy Award. No one's going to say, I've got this slapstick idea about the Holocaust because they'll say, what else you got? Well, here's the thing about Hollywood that you have to understand, right? It's, it's a kind of hypocritical thing because on the one hand, they'll say, show me an idea that I've never seen before. And then you do that and they're scared shitless because it's too out there, right? Or you can show them an idea that's safe and they'll say, I've seen it before. Yep. So there's there's this really fine line that screenwriters are trying to walk between being original and being safe. And we talked about that on a, a bunch of different episodes of the podcast, not in those exact terms, but that's something that people are worried about all the time. Yeah. So in that respect, I do get it. Like I understand from a writing standpoint, the appeal of this story being something fresh and new. Yes. But at the same time, I understand completely from the studio system being like, hmm, that seems like a big risk. Yeah. Right? So so I, I totally get it. I agree with Marshall and I agree with the studios on this one. It's yeah. a double-edged sword. Um, but anyway, he, he goes on to try to continue to pitch the other sister to the studio. And he tells them it's this great love story about a family dealing with a child. And the studio does the opposite thing, right? They go, oh, we've seen that before. What else you got? What else you got? So eventually, Marshall and Brenner just decide that they're going to sit down and write it on spec. And once they wrote it, they were able to get it made. So that's what happens sometimes. They go and write this film. It's on spec. They come back to the studio. Studios start to say they get it. But as they pitched it, I understand that a lot of people said the same thing about it. Is that correct? That is correct. Because a lot of them said, all right, you have an idea there. But what you have is an idea for a TV movie. Which is not what you want to always hear as a film. It's not what you want to hear. But (laughs) it it ties back to what I'm saying, right? Which is that a TV movie, lower budget, which equals lower risk, right? So it it ties into that whole idea of that originality versus out there, risk-reward conversation. Mm -hmm. Right? So Marshall and Brenner were asked in this interview about the biggest difference between TV and movie ideas. And here's what Marshall had to say. Quote, it's hard. A lot of people we pitched the other sister to said it was a TV movie, and we were aware that it could go that way because they do those kinds of things. Disease of the week, murder of the week. I'm going to do a little aside and say, I'm not super stoked on that terminology, (laughs) disease of the week, as a way to talk about this movie, but I think that also encapsulates why I don't like this movie. Anyway, (laughs) quote continues, we felt we could make it a little more special because they never do it with the humor we wanted to do this with. On the other hand, we know that unless we got a movie cast, they wouldn't want to do this. So they're basically saying, we're not going to give you the money to make this unless you can find people who are willing to star in this shit. Because we don't think that you're going to be able to do that. Eventually, though, the film ended up finding a home. And this is not a joke, at Disney. So the film went to Touchstone Pictures, but... A certain change needed to be made before this movie could be produced. Initially, Brunner and Marshall wrote the film to take place in Chicago. 
In the same interview that we were just talking about, Marshall goes on to explain that there are essentially three different kinds of screenplays that a writer must prepare for a film. And this is interesting. He says, quote, There are three different drafts of a screenplay in the development process. The first screenplay is for the studio when they say, Okay, we like this. The second screenplay you write so the actors can read it, or so you can get an actor to do it. You can change the screenplay so one part is better, so you can get a better actor. Then the third screenplay is, you can't shoot this screenplay on this budget. You've got to rewrite the whole screenplay again for the budget. But then there's also a fourth, the shooting screenplay. We, they said, quote, we just did a picture that takes place in California, but we wrote the other sister for Chicago. And then they said, you're shooting in San Francisco. So we rewrote the whole thing again. Interesting. Okay. When asked who decided to shoot it in San Francisco, Marshall and Brunner stated, the man giving you the money, you see? <laughs> they said, you can shoot it in Chicago, but you can't shoot it for the budget we're giving you. So the rest of this interview is really interesting because it gives you this insight into how the old Hollywood studio system kind of worked and how two people who were veterans of it working in both television and film navigated it. Yeah, you got to know, right? Like, the studio is playing their games. But Marshall and Brunner have played these games before. Yeah. And they know what's up. So, like, but it kind of goes back to, like, I remember hearing, um, so Tom Lennon and Ben Garant are two screenwriters who actually kind of wrote the book on how to write a Hollywood system screenplay because they managed to write the Ninth Museum movies and, um they were on podcasts they were on they recounted working on stuff like disney's herbie fully loaded and some of the stupid notes they would get back from the studio they were writing a scene where it was like the characters are sitting around at a barbecue outside and then somebody was like ah does it have to be in the daytime and it's like what the fuck does that have to do with the movie but see that just goes to show that screenwriting is just like any other job where you get a lot of notes that are just someone's preference, and they don't actually matter. Yeah. So, they really wanted this movie to take place in the snow. Marshall said, quote, we want- Wait, they wanted Herbie fully loaded to take place in the snow? They wanted the other sister to take place in the snow. Oh, okay. I'm caught up. I'm okay. caught up. Okay. I, I apologize. I don't know if you remember this, Jared, but I had three whiskeys during my rundown <laughs> because it was that complicated for me to get through. So, Fair enough. So- Marsh- That's not true. Marshall said, quote, We wanted snow. Our idea was a very filmic screenplay idea that in the middle of the snow, first of all, not only did she have a cheap little wedding, but it snowed on her wedding. So we had the shot where the snow is coming down and through the snow come the red uniforms of a marching band. It's a beautiful shot. They said, Yeah, very good. You can't do that. It costs too much money. Why don't you, why do you got to go to Chicago? Make it in San Francisco. Every, everything looks the same. So we finally found a hill in San Francisco. It's not as good as the snow, but it was a good reveal. The reveal over the hill, and it still got the audience teared up. I don't think the audience teared up at this, but okay. And I'm having trouble understanding how San Francisco is that much cheaper than Chicago. But Not anymore. Whatever. (laughs) Uh, 20 years ago, it's probably way cheaper. Um, Yeah, that that checks out. Yeah. But... In fact, there were a couple of scenes that were written specifically because of their look and location. Marshall said, We had written a nice scene where the daughter has to stand up to the mother, but I kept worrying wearing a director's hat that the scene was not interesting enough. You know, they're just screaming at each other just back and forth. I thought directionally we had the country club, so we had the golf course, so that's why the water went off, to give it a little extra something. 
So a lot of times when you write a screenplay, you write things that the director might like. A director might direct a film because of just one or two scenes. So you've got to make every scene as great as you can make it, because you don't know which one they're going to pick, which one they're going to fall in love with. Which is fascinating to read. That's interesting. I mean, you're selling while you're writing. Yeah. Like, like you know, the, that's part like, of the job. Despite the studio request, there was one thing the film didn't really have a lot of, though. Acting notes for the script. Yeah, so Brenner stated that there weren't a ton of notes added to the script from either the writers or the actors. And that's kind of unusual, because a lot of the time, actors actually request notes for clarification or motivation or whatever, right? Um, but according to Marshall, there were really only substantial notes from one actor, and that was Diane Keaton. And, quote, all of Diane's notes were, if I send the kid away for no reason, I'm a mean mom, and you've got to help me show that she was destructive in a subtle way. Sending a child away is one of the most difficult things a mother can do, so at least motivate me. And uh, I don't think he took that note, because she does seem like she sent her away for no reason, and that she's a piece of shit. But, either way. With that in mind, Brunner and Marshall also noted that writing is an ongoing process, right? So, according to Brunner, on The Other Sister, we never stopped writing. And Marshall agreed, and he noted that even when they were watching the trailer for the movie, they were thinking to themselves, what the hell, this isn't going to work. See if you can fill in here. With this being said, let's talk about the cast and do a rundown of them. Um, if you want to start off the with Juliette Lewis, go for it. Yeah, I'll do it. As you know, we have a lot of Tates, which means we have a lot of cast members to talk about. So I'll start with Juliette Lewis, who played Carla Tate. Uh, before this movie, Lewis made her on-screen debut in the television film Home Fires in 1987, and she got a lot of positive attention based on her performance. As a result, she was quickly cast on the television series I Married Dora, which ran between 1987 and 1988. And that was all before she turned 14. So, lots of work. When she did turn 14, she was legally emancipated from her parents. And this is a bit of a tangent, but it's something that I didn't realize is actually pretty common in Hollywood, so I'm guessing it might be news to a lot of you guys as well. Apparently, a lot of kids get emancipated with their parents' approval because it makes it easier for them to get cast in the roles that they want. What? Yeah, so as Lewis put it, I know that sounds all radical, but when you start acting when you're younger, you talk to other kids and their moms, and they're like, yeah, if you want to get a job, they like on your resume to say emancipated minor versus minor because you can then work over eight hours. So you got to love those labor law loopholes, right? America. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Lewis appeared in a lot of TV shows and movies leading up to 1999, including The Facts of Life, Christmas Vacation, The Wonder Years, Crooked Hearts, Cape Fear, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which is another movie kind of in this same uh, yeah, I'm, thematic topic. I'm, I'm surprised we didn't bring that up. Huh. Yeah. Um, Natural Born Killers and From Dusk Till Dawn. And we'll see her again in 1999 for Josh Klausner's The Fourth Floor, where she stars alongside William Hurt. After 1999, she's continued to appear in all kinds of shit, including Old School, Starsky and Hutch, Grand Theft Auto 4, Due Date, The Firm, Portlandia, Secrets and Lies, A Million Little Pieces, and more. Uh, we have a couple of casting stories for Juliette Lewis. Uh, one of those is that in an interview with Slant Magazine, she was asked about if people identified her based on certain movies. And here's what she had to say about that. Quote, It's interesting. It's usually What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Cape Fear, Natural Born Killers, and From Dusk Till Dawn. Those are the ones that are always mentioned. And then I'll get a lot of mentions of the other sister. So I guess that was a big rental. Insert canned uh, a sitcom laughter there. Because it didn't do too well in theaters. So that's interesting, right? You have this list of really amazing 
well-known, critically acclaimed movies. And then you have this garbage pile that we're talking about this week. Um, in another interview, this time with Howard Stern, Stern mentioned that he thought Juliet played the character of Carla Tate incredibly well. Whereas in other movies, he thought people could take a similar character off the rails a bit. Lewis replied by saying, it's so hard because you can get into a caricature and you have to have some honesty. Hmm. In my opinion, they may have used some of the takes where she got into the caricature. But again, that's just my opinion, creeping into this factual information that I'm supposed to be giving you without bias. Another interesting fact is that right before this movie got made, Juliette Lewis had gotten out of rehab. And similar to what we talked about last episode with End of Days and Arnold, the insurance company didn't want to take a chance and insure her because they thought it was too risky. Um, so in this case, Gary Marshall actually put up the money himself to insure Juliet Lewis. So that's how bad he wanted her in this movie. But again, you have to think back to that conversation of we're not going to make the movie unless you have a cast. So he's like, okay, in order to get this cast member who's actually agreed to star in this ridiculous role, I'm going to have to pay for her insurance. And maybe that was worth it to him movie making we'll talk about this later <laughs> box office numbers the money that came in it wasn't worth it for him but anyway according to marshall and brunner quote i think juliette lewis liked the scene where she broke down at the christmas party because she felt she could do that she's a great dramatic actress the comedy she was nervous about that um sure okay <laughs> sure Who, who's next next up we have diane keaton as elizabeth so i mean and this is another like acting great so keaton began her career on stage and made her screen debut as an extra in lovers and other strangers in 1970 she rose to prominence with her first major film role as you know a movie i've never heard of before called the godfather where she played Kay adams corleone um in 1972 she was yeah so she after the godfather she starred in two woody allen movies played again sam and sleeper and she continued to appear in Godfather films and Woody Allen films like, you know, Annie Hall, in which she plays... Oh, I've heard of that movie yeah. for multiple reasons. In which she plays Annie Hall, which is interesting because her birth name was Diane Hall. But anyway, I digress. She also starred in Radio Days, Father of the Bride, Look Who's Talking Now, Marvin's Room, and several other films leading up to 1999. So she's a 1999 one-off, so we're not going to be seeing her again on the show but that doesn't mean you can't check out any of her other movies, including Something's Gotta Give, The Family Stone, Mad Money, Morning Glory, which is fantastic, Finding Dory, Palms, or her upcoming film Family Jewels. Keaton has A movie about balls? <laughs> Keaton has received an Academy Award, a BAFTA Award, two Golden Globe Awards, and the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. Again, I think it's so cool that they went from Girls Not Grey to handing out movie awards. It's just the coolest thing. I appreciate that joke greatly. Um, so there's one casting story. I read this. I know this is coming directly from Gary Marshall. I don't know how true this is, but... But remember what he said, Jared. Sometimes you change a script just to get a certain actor. That's true. So he said this about the following with working with Diane Keaton. Quote, Sometimes the actor reads it and says, I'll do it if you change this. And sometimes no actors read it, but you know this part is not a part an actor is going to want because the agency tells you it's not big enough. So you make it actor desirable as a rewrite. You make the part so interesting the actor will do it. Forgetting Diane Keaton for the other sister, we wrote in a beautiful wardrobe because she hadn't had a good wardrobe in a while. That's an actor's rewriting. So she did it for the wardrobe, allegedly. She 
the famous Limp Biscuit song. She did it all for the wardrobe. For the wardrobe. The wardrobe. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Okay, so up next we have Tom Skerritt as Radley, who he always reminds me of American Dad. I have to say that. I can't hear his name without thinking of that. But anyway, Tom Skerritt is also a real person and not just a reference on a Seth MacFarlane show. So we're going to talk about some of the things that he has done. Tom Skerritt has appeared in more than 40 films and more than 200 television episodes since 1962. And if that sounds like a lot, it's because it is. He made his film debut in War Hunt, which was produced by Terry Sanders and released in 1962. And leading up to 1999, he was best known for a few tiny properties that you may not have heard of, Jared. MASH. Okay. Alien. (laughs) The Dead Zone. Yeah. Top Gun. A River Runs Through It. Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. And the television series Picket Fences, for which he won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series in 1993. Wow. If you didn't recognize any of those things, you might also have seen him in The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, My Three Sons, The Magical World of Disney, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, A Dangerous Summer, Cheers as Evan Drake, right? Remember that story arc? That was kind of fun. Yeah. Steel Magnolias (laughs) and The Rookie. And we might see him again on the podcast if we get desperate for a movie called Into the Wild Blue, which was a History Channel TV movie about flight teams like the Blue Angels. And I think he was just like the host (laughs) slash commentator. But if we start running out of shit to talk about, we're going to talk about that. (laughs) After 1999, he showed up in a bunch of stuff that you might recognize, even though his career really kind of peaked before 2000. So some of the things you may have seen him in recently include Will and Grace, The West Wing, Law and Order SVU, The Velveteen Rabbit, and The Good Wife. And he's got a movie called East of the Mountains that's currently in post-production, so you will be seeing him again soon if you elect to watch that movie. Who's up next? Nice. Next up, we got Giovanni Ribisi as Danny. His first acting credit was as a character named Curtis Johnson on two episodes of the TV series Highway to Heaven in 1985. He also appeared on the new Leave It to Beaver, which I didn't know was a thing. They didn't Leave It to Beaver before? They had to try again? Is that what you're saying? I think so. Okay. 42 episodes of My Two Dads, which was his longest running role, The Wonder Years, Walker, Texas Ranger, and The X-Files. He broke into movies around 1996 with The Grave and soon after appeared in Richard Linklater's film Suburbia. But his first really big break in terms of movies was Saving Private Ryan in 1998, which he's incredible in. This guy seems like he's always acting, and that means we'll see him several more times in 1999 for The Mod Squad, The Virgin Suicides, and All the Rage. So, after this movie, despite appearing in The Other Sister, Giovanni Ribisi's career really kicked into high gear after 1999. Despite. I like that. Yeah, despite this film, yeah. You might recognize him from Gone in 60 Seconds, Friends, where he played Phoebe's brother Frank on nine episodes. It, one of the funnier lines, my sister's going a to have a very strange character arc. <laughs> Call of Duty, for which he did the voice of Private Elder. Cold Mountain, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. My Name is Earl, for which he was nominated for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Comedy Series. Avatar, Ted, A Million Ways to Die in the West, A Million Little Pieces, and Sneaky Pete on Amazon Prime. Someday, in 2028, you'll also recognize him from Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5. Yeah, because all the fired Disney employees' salaries are going to make 18 more of those movies that we don't need. There's a couple casting... There's one casting story that was referenced in that same screenwriting interview we've been referencing before. 
where Marshall said, Giovanni Ribisi liked the joy of sex scene, the love scene, and some of the comedy scenes. That's why he liked it. He got to play this kind of character and be funny. And that's about as much information as there is right now, except for this one quote from Marshall. So that's fine. That's more than we need, honestly, about this movie. Who do we got next? Up next, we have Poppy Montgomery as Caroline Tate. And compared to the rest of the people in this movie, she's got the, quote, smallest acting career with just 35 credits on IMDb. But buried within those 35 credits are more than 250 episodes of TV series. So that's something to shake a stick at. Wow. Montgomery moved to L.A. from Australia at the age of 18. And apparently when she got to L.A., she sent a headshot to Julia Roberts' former manager, Bob McGowan, every single day. So she was like, hey, Bob, you get my headshot. Hey, Bob, you get my headshot. Hey, Bob, you get my headshot. Finally, Bob got her fucking headshot. And thanks to her persistence, she actually got jobs. And she spent most of the 90s appearing in TV series and movies like Silk Stockings, Jake Lasseter, Justice on the Bayou, Party of Five, and NYPD Blue. So it was the opposite of the Tobias Funke method. That's exactly correct, Jared. That's exactly (laughs) right. Uh, She also landed a couple of small movie roles, such as Tammy and the T-Rex and Devil in a Blue Dress. And we will see her again in 1999 for Life, This Space Between Us, and The Wonder Cabinet, which sounds like a weird sexualized version of The Indian in the Cupboard to me, but we'll find out soon enough. Montgomery's big break actually came after 1999 when she was given the role of Marilyn Monroe in the 2001 CBS miniseries Blonde, based on a Joyce Carol Oates novel, which Joyce Carol Oates, if you didn't know, three saddest words in the English language. From there, things escalated quickly, and the next role she was offered was a starring role as Samantha Spade on the CBS mystery drama Without a Trace, and she ended up playing Samantha Spade on 160 episodes of Without a Trace between 2002 and 2009. She's also had recurring roles on the TV shows Glory Days, Unforgettable, and Reef Break. And interestingly, she played J.K. Rowling in a TV movie from 2011 called Magic Beyond Words, the J.K. Rowling story, which I didn't know was a thing. Didn't know that was a thing either. So there you go. But you know what? We can't make that movie now. I bet you they left some of the trans hate stuff out of that movie. What do you think? She's a fucking turf. So next up, we have Sarah Paulson as Heather. Sarah Paulson began working as an actress right out of high school when she appeared in the Horton Foote play Talking Pictures at the Signature Theater in New York. See, that's funny because Talking Pictures are what they call movies, but it was a play, so like, whoa. (laughs) Soon after that, in 1994, she was cast in an episode of Law & Order. From there, she had a recurring role on the short-lived TV series American Gothic. She made her big-screen debut in 1997 in the independent thriller film Levitation, And The Other Sister was only her second big screen film. We'll actually see her one more time in 1999 alongside Jamie Foxx in Steve Rash's Held Up. Which is actually one of the few movies where Jamie Foxx does not play a blind man. After 1999, things really took off for Paulson. Since then, she's been in or on What Women Want, the TV series Jack and Jill, Deadwood, Serenity, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, 12 Years a Slave, The Runner, Ocean's 8, Bird Box, Glass, The Goldfinch, American Horror Story, American Crime Story, and Ratchet. She was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people in the world in 2017, which, given her track record, I mean, just with American Horror Story alone, that that makes total sense to me. One 
little casting story. We've often brought up on the show whenever somebody else is considered for the role of another character. So Gary Marshall was actually considering his daughter Kathleen for the role of Heather Tate, but for whatever reason, he changed his mind after seeing Sarah Paulson's audition and gave it to her. And I think that was a pretty good move, though, because it helped Sarah Paulson get her footing in Hollywood. How good do you have to be to make a dude be like, fuck my own kid, you get this role? You got to be pretty good, right? Yeah. So we've got some additional cast quickly to uh, close this out. First up, we have Linda Thorson as Drew Evanson. We've got Joe Flanagan as Jeff Reed. We have Juliet Mills as Winnie the Housekeeper. Which is different from Winnie the Pooh, I learned doing the research for this movie. (laughs) We've also got Tracy Reiner as Michelle. And finally, we've got Hector Elizondo as Ernie. So he's been in every single Gary Marshall film kind of the secret weapon, similar to how we brought up how John Ratzenberger has been in every Pixar film. It's kind of like that. So most people will probably know him from this show. Um, if since we talk about Disney and all that, he was in the princess diaries as Joe. It's probably where you, most people know him from. That's where I know him from for sure. Yeah. So there you go. I love this guy. Yeah. I love when he shows up in a film. I always get, uh, I'm always happy. Even if the film is bad like this. So, Let's talk about filming. If we have to, let's do it. Filming took place in early 1998, starting in Long Beach, Pasadena, and most notably, the San Francisco Bay Area. A piece in the Marin Independent Journal from January 1998 spoke with the second unit location manager, Laird Bunch, about how they put together the filming locations. Bunch said the crew scouted the entire area for all possible filming sites. Quote, We show the directors what we found, and the art director makes the decision. But a number of the scenes were actually filmed in Sausalito. And if you're not from the Bay Area, Sausalito is just over the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. There's a scene where Lewis and Keaton park outside of 117 Caledonia Street, which has a San Francisco banner in the background to help set the scene. This is the scene where they try to rent the upstairs apartment. For this shot, they actually used body doubles, Well, the actual actors, or the principal actors, were with the film's first unit in San Francisco to film other scenes. So that's sufficient. They're doing double duty. We haven't talked about anything like that before on the podcast. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Filming the scene proved difficult, though, as the 25-person crew had to navigate downtown traffic throughout the day. The Mercedes that you see in the shot had to turn the corner at least six times before the crew was satisfied with the shot, which... If you're in San Francisco, let's be honest, you're turning the corner more than that just to find a parking space. That's very true. (laughs) They also filmed scenes at the retail shops on Bridgeway and in the Marin Headlands, as well as on Angel Island. According to Robert Mooney, the second assistant to the second unit director, it's easier to do the filming here than in San Francisco, and I believe that. It's difficult to accomplish almost anything in San Francisco. Another problem with filming in San Francisco or Sausalito was the weather. And being from the Bay area and working in San Francisco, I can tell you that the weather is not fantastic. We're not Seattle, but we're not exactly Miami. We've got some rain and clouds and fog and shit like that. Right. So, Oh yeah. um, Danny Michalsk, a second unit grip for industrial light and magic described the work on this film in the same interview. He said it was quote touchy and tough. The weather has been prohibitive and we've only had a few good days to film. And this is of course referencing the fact that, that there were a bunch of rainstorms in San Francisco during the past week. Script needed sunshine. And he said, who knows? Maybe they'll have to change the script. But obviously they didn't, right? (laughs) Um, Because they wanted snow in the fucking first place. Um, 
but obviously they didn't since the final product is bright and sunny and devoid of rain and Carl does not make an appearance. And if you're not from here, Carl is the name of the fog in San Francisco. There were some other locations that were filmed throughout San Francisco for both B-roll and for the first unit direction. So they shot several scenes throughout downtown San Francisco, around the Palace of Fine Arts. Around That's the, the ba- sex scene when they're screaming at each other about <laughs> sex in public, which I've also done at the Palace of Fine Arts, but it didn't go so well. Uh, the San Francisco Bay Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, and then the, str- the Shrine of St. Francis Assisi Church. In Southern California, they filmed at two prominent locations, Polytechnic High School in, Las- in Long Beach, California, All Saint- and All Saints Church in Pasadena, California. When they were filming at All Saints Church, did Arnold show up and be like, I'm going to bring the devil out through the floor? Not that I'm aware of, no. Okay, well, I had to ask. (laughs) And so while we haven't found a ton of information about the filming of this movie, we did find an article talking about the very final scene in this movie, that marching band appearance. As we were doing research for this movie, it was very hard to find anything. So... There's not much out there. There's really not much out there. So I utilized Google and did as many search term combinations, everything that I could find. Lo and behold, these things we're reading off are very few things that I found buried within the internet. And so take it for what this is. It's kind of interesting, but it's, it's not like talking about filming with Juliette Lewis and Giovanni Ribisi, but we're giving you what we found. Hey, kind of interesting is all we've got. And also, just from me to you, Jared, thank you, because Jared found 150% of the information <laughs> for this week's episode. I didn't I, do a goddamn thing. Yeah, that's so, not true. You did. So I, I, I did my best with, with what we had here. So, so any any thanks that you guys have for this week's episode can go to Jared. Uh, and conversely, any complaints can also go to Jared because I didn't find that stuff either. Please don't. Um, so we found an article in the Daily Californian from January 23rd, 1998, that talks all about this film. So specifically, it talks about the drum major that's shown in the film in that big ending scene for about five seconds, played by Jerry Miller. And I gotta say, Jared, I was in marching band in high school, and our drum majors didn't do anything like that. No. This guy was going ham. Yeah. So, Miller was a sophomore at UC Berkeley and a mellophone player in the Cal Band. And let me just say this, not to offend anybody, mellophone players are the scrubs of marching band. (laughs) Anybody who hears this would agree with me. I was in marching band, too. (laughs) The French horn in concert band is a beautiful instrument. The mellophone is its weird, distorted, (laughs) awful cousin. And if you've got one leg that's two inches longer than the other one... That's the perfect marching band instrument for you. Thank God. The Disney production offices had approached the Cal Band as they were thinking of using them in the final scene of this film, but they ended up deciding on using only one member. So they asked the Cal, and I find this interesting, but also inclusivity. They asked the Cal Band if they had, quote, an ethnic minority who had drum major experience and would be interested. Oh, God. So Miller thought, hey, I fit that description. Miller auditioned by sending in a resume, photographs, and a list of all band-related activities. And this is where it gets kind of funny because of the wording of the article. It said, quote, Miller said that after they received his resume, Disney wanted to see him twirling in action. Like a 
I'm thinking of Bruno right now. And if you have seen Bruno, you know exactly what scene I'm talking about. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Oh, God. There's a meat spin. That's God. all I'm going to say. God damn it. Miller got to, uh, So basically, they wanted a videotape to see what he would do if he were leading the band in the parade as a drum major. So he got to work. He went to Edwards Track Stadium at UC Berkeley with his friend Gary Sue, a tuba player in the Cal band, and videotape... higher on the ranking score than the mellophone. <laughs> Trombone, video- of course, is the best. Are Not saying, only because it's saying, what I play. Because you play it. Yeah, that's what I thought. But because it's also the song that Carla and Danny fucked to in the movie is 76 trombones. Not 76 mellophones. Not 76 tubas. He videotaped a four-minute performance of him as a drum major. And he recorded the performance to the song Another Star by Stevie Wonder, which was frequently, frequently played by the Cal Band. And Sue believes that Miller did two things that actually made him stand out for this very brief role. He performed a high step, a marching band move that is only performed by a few different marching bands throughout the nation, including Cal Band, and he thinks that it had the look that Disney wanted for this film. When I said he was going ham, that's what he was doing. Yeah. I'm, this is interesting as someone who was in marching band in high school. So the other thing he did was he strutted. So this is a marching style that involves straight-legged, waist-high kicking, which is an act that is usually only done by the tuba players in the Cal Band. Or the hyenas in The Lion King. (laughs) So, lo and behold, Miller got a call early one morning, and he got the part. So it's time to start filming those scenes. He was asked to appear twice in the film, once for a shoot in Los Angeles, and again for the final scene in San Francisco. Miller's scenes took place in between two of his finals during his semester at UC Berkeley and throughout the winter break. And while Miller was keen to explain the final scene, the publicist for the film, Stuart Fink, wanted to keep things a little bit quieter. And I'm going to read this quote because it's funny, because it reads like an Avengers Endgame spoiler. (laughs) Okay, let's hear it. Quote, The band is part of a climactic scene towards the end of the movie. That's all I'm going to tell you so you can buy a ticket and see it. That's literally all that happens, though, as well. But it's like, really? You couldn't just... There was no big spoiler, but... All right. I also have to say that Stuart Fink made me think... If Stuart Little and Barton Fink were combined into one movie and you just had this little mouse sitting in a hotel room writing at a typewriter, I don't know. I just, my brain's going there. That sounds so, like, a, that sounds like, it sounds like if Cohen, the Coen brothers and Wes Anderson collaborated on a film together. That's exactly right. So at this point in the show, we usually have production stories. We don't moving on. Yeah. They don't have any for this movie. Yeah. I, I think why. rightfully so. Most of the people involved with this production have tried to forget about it. Yeah. And so they don't want anything in writing, and there's nothing out there. I think this movie had six trivia points on IMDb. Yeah. Six, which is not much. And that includes the fun facts that we usually put in there, but we've already kind of put them in the episode. So we're going to make this relatively quick and move on to the release and reception section. Yeah, unlike the movie itself. We're going to go fast yeah, and get it over with. Test screenings and hype. Something that we don't usually have information for that we actually do this time. So we're kind of living in bizarro world. But here we go. So as we've talked about throughout the podcast, The Other Sister was domestically financed and distributed by Disney. And the weekend before its slated release date of February 26, 1999, Mickey Mouse and his friends ran sneak previews around the United States to drum up some word-of-mouth advertising for this movie. But there was a bit of a problem. While general audiences actually seemed to like the movie quite a bit, 
the critics who went to see those early screenings felt the exact opposite. For lack of a better term, they fucking hated it. Yeah. And based on this, I'm going to I'm going to put it nicely and say mixed feedback. Disney decided that they were going to play the numbers game. Yeah, that so, that puts it lightly. Right? <laughs> so that transitions us into the release date and box office stuff that we talk about, right? Yeah. The other sister was still released on February 26, 1999, but Instead of going all in, Disney decided to book it in just 1,343 theaters, which was only about 500 more than the limited test run. Their plan was to expand the theater count by about 300 more as word of mouth started to get more asses in seats because they knew the critics' reviews weren't going to get people to see this movie. Yeah. So they were relying on you to go and tell your friend, hey, I saw this really cute movie. You should go see it. That was their whole marketing plan after that first weekend of test screenings, right? So, February 26th rolls around. The movie opened at number three at the North American box office, which isn't too bad, actually. Third yeah. spot could be worse, right? It made $6.6 million in its opening weekend. It was behind Payback and 8mm, which opened at the top spot. Now, I read another article that said 200 cigarettes and 8mm, just to be clear. So, the Payback 200 cigarettes thing is a question, but 200 Cigarettes is a movie that is essentially unwatchable at this point, which I think we talked about on the last episode. So Yeah, we can't find it anywhere. So if anybody has a copy, please send it. Exactly. So anyway, moral of the story there is Other Sister, third place, 6.6 mil, right? That's not great. But it was enough to convince Disney to book the movie in 503 more theaters the following weekend. So they actually upped their their booking from the 300 that they had planned. Unfortunately, though, that led to diminishing returns at just $5,731,839. So at that point, Disney decides that they won't expand the release any further. So we're essentially stunted at this point, right? Yeah. And by the time the domestic run is over, the other sister has only grossed $27.8 million. It's failed to recoup its $35 million budget, and it's officially deemed a box office bomb. And you might be thinking, okay, they're in the red, right? But 27.8 to 35, that doesn't seem too bad. Yeah. But when you consider that Disney really only saw about $15.2 million after theaters took their percentage of the gross, yeah. it's not great. And in fact, that $15.2 didn't even cover the P&A costs, which are basically marketing, advertising, and publicity expenses. So this was actually much worse than it seems on the surface. And as if those domestic numbers weren't bad enough, the movie flopped even more horrifically overseas. The recorded overseas numbers were a mere $3.3 million. 3.3. Wow. That's not much. And it was doing so poorly overseas that it actually ended up going straight to video in France and Russia. So you mean to tell me that other countries were looking at America and saying, wow, this is really stupid. You know, Jared, I can't think of another time, even within the last eight days, that couldn't that may you. have happened. Yeah, I couldn't no, tell you. I, especially in the last four years, but most of all, in the last, like, four to seven days. Yeah. Oh, look. Nothing's news, coming to a mind. A news notification. I wonder what that could be about. Don't look, don't look at that. Please don't look at that now. <laughs> uh, anyway. Ratings and reviews. Let's get into things, Jared. What's up with the ratings and reviews? Okay. Based on the box office numbers, I'm thinking not good. Are you going to confirm that for <laughs> yeah, me? Yeah, it's not good. So, a minute ago we mentioned the other sister did well with audiences but not with critics. And some somewhat surprisingly, the numbers on Rotten Tomatoes continue to support that. 
The film maintains a 29% rating on the tomato meter with 49 reviews. But somehow, it has a 71% audience score. I'm sorry, did you say 71? 71. Because that seems positive to me. Yeah. With, I mean, it's it's a C, but um, with... C's get degrees. C's get degrees. 49,409 user ratings. So considering that audience ratings are still rolling in for this movie, I'm a little bit shocked that more people aren't finding it completely offensive. I thought that number would have skewed down for sure with like the newer reviews. Yeah, but it's it's weird. So The scary part is that maybe it has. Yeah, that's true. But now, for the moment, we've all been waiting for the reviews. Oh boy, I'm ready. So, believe it or not, there are actually a couple of decently good ones. So, this one, do you want to read positive or negative? No, you go for it. Okay. You go for the positive. Okay. So, this one's from Walter Adiego of the San Francisco Examiner. Quote. Wait, the San Francisco Examiner? Yes. Are we sure he didn't just like it because it took place in San Francisco? Because <laughs> this seems like some collusion. Possibly. Quote, Like him or not, you have to admit that veteran director Gary Pretty Woman Marshall has an astounding instinct for popular entertainment. He's done it again with The Other Sister, a slick romantic comedy about two quote-unquote mentally challenged people who meet, fall in love, overcome various obstacles, and presumably lived hap- live happily ever after. This is unashamed hokum, for Marshall is an expert at suggesting, then quickly defanging, any difficulties that threaten the heartwarming mood he favors. Complexity and realism aren't in his vocabulary, which is no surprise from the creator of Laverne and Shirley. But he's very good at his job, and even critics with hearts of granite have to admit it, though they may hate themselves for it. The scenes between Carla and Danny are pulled off with skill. The characters are sweet and remain just this side of mawkish. Even with their slow and tentative discovery of sex, which could have been an embarrassing mess, is handled with humor and delicacy. He finishes the review by saying, This is Gary Marshall at his utterly commercial best. A few laughs, a few tears, a big positive finale. If If sugary concoctions are your cup of tea, you'll savor the other sister. This is Gary Marshall at his utterly commercial best? No. Absolutely not. What the fuck? Okay, I'm just going to say it's 1999. We're in San Francisco. Weed's not legal yet, but they're doing a lot of it there, among other things. Yeah. Maybe Walter was was token a little when he saw this movie. What do you think about that? What was that meme that has uh, Flanders from The Simpsons that says, for all of you smoking the devil's lettuce out there, and it's Flanders holding up a sign that says Christ is watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's what we're dealing with here. Hi, yeah. Leo, their neighbor. Here's a good yeah. review. So. I, I feel like this guy was on crack cocaine when he wrote this review. I'm just going to say it. I, I I don't understand how he got this from the movie that he watched. I don't understand either. But, but it's subjective. It, it is subjective, and I am closer to the side of this bad review which comes from Roger Ebert, who rated the film one out of four stars, which I thought was terrible until I heard about that half a star rating that you talked about a little while ago. <laughs> he's given one out films, of four is still bad. He's given reviews no stars before. My One of my favorite pieces that he ever did was The Human Centipede. He didn't give it zero stars. He didn't give it half star. He said no star rating. And he said... Right. And Just the, a refusal. 
the quote was just like, we don't need to rate this. This movie knows what it is. And so, I'm a different person for it. <laughs> so based on the information that Jared just shared, the other sister is better than human centipede. <laughs> which is not saying a lot. Anyway. Here's what Roger Ebert had to say. And this one comes out of the gate hot, so be ready. And small disclaimer, you're going to hear the word retarded a couple of times in this review. Yeah, it is 1999. it's not going to be used in the most sensitive way. Yeah. Here we go. The other sister is shameless in its use of mental retardation as a gimmick, a prop, and a plot device. Anyone with any knowledge of retardation is likely to find the film offensive. It treats the characters like cute little performing seals who always delivered their, quote, retarded dialogue with perfect timing and an edge of irony and drama. Their zingers slide out with the precision of a sitcom punchline. The film stars Juliette Lewis as Carla, a rich San Francisco girl of 17 or 18 who has just returned home after several years in an institution. Her ambition is to train as a veterinarian's assistant. Her father, Tom Skerritt, thinks she should go for it, but her mother, Diane Keaton, is opposed. If there is a convincingly retarded character in the movie, it's the mother. Jesus. She's, right? Holy shit. She's borderline hysterical in insisting her daughter is not ready for junior college, dating, dancing, sex, living in her own apartment, or anything else. The movie's dialogue knows it's funny, a fatal error. I wonder who thought up sex in the first place one of them uses studying the sex books. The answer? I think it was Madonna. Sure, that's exactly what would be said. And how about when Danny tells Carla, I love you more than band music and cookie making? All of their words are pronounced as if the characters have marbles in their mouths. And when they walk, it's a funny little modified duck walk. It's like they learned how to act retarded by studying under Jerry Lewis. Jesus again (laughs) god damn it the details of the other sister show a movie with no serious knowledge of retardation and no interest in learning or teaching i never tire of quoting godard who tells us that the way to criticize a movie is to make another movie the movie that shames the other sister was made in 1988 by robert m young it is called dominic and eugene and it stars tom hulse and ray liotta in the story of a retarded man and his brother see that and you will cringe when you compare it to the other sister. Jeez. So that's that's the review, right? I mean, that's the, the highlights from the review. It goes on longer than that. But questionable use of the word retarded aside, this review is about as much of a spot-on skewering as a reviewer can give of this movie. True. And, yeah. and one thing I do want to point out here is that in some cases, he's using the word retarded in a medical sense. And in some cases, he's using it on purpose, offensively, to describe the characters so there's this is this is not the best language right no but again this was 1999 it was a different time and i think the review itself is really really spot on i think the points he makes about the movie are perfect i think the point here that the intellectually disabled characters are the butt of the joke is really important and i think that's something that you can't overlook because to me, that's exactly how I felt watching this entire movie. Agreed. I felt like they were making fun of like, oh, look, oh, she doesn't know any better. It's supposed to be funny. And I'm just like, this is awful. It's like not even, it, it, it it's making fun of them. It's not like, right. it, it's not, and it's using it as a plot device. 
It, it, that's exactly right. And it, But there is something behind the movie that is kind of heartfelt and does kind of make sense. And so because of that, I wanted to share one other review. And this one comes from Evan Sadoff at birthmoviesdeath.com. And I want to share this with you for two reasons. One, because it was written relatively recently in 2014. So not way back in 1999. Okay. And two, because it actually kind of captures how I feel about this movie, which is somewhere in the middle of Ebert and Adiego. Okay. So I'm going to read this to you. Okay. Please. Quote, the other sister has always seemed like an urban legend to me. I knew it existed, but found its premise difficult to believe and sort of assumed I heard wrong or there was some miscommunication. There's just no way someone would make a romantic dramedy where Juliette Lewis and Giovanni Ribisi play mentally challenged youngsters who fall in love. Well, now I've seen it and can confirm. Someone <laughs> did make a romantic dramedy where Juliette Lewis and Giovanni Ribisi play mentally challenged youngsters who fall in love. His name is Gary Marshall. In a way, I can understand the, quote, we never tried this angle before, end quote, appeal of the other sister. It offers a new kind of movie romance for people to fawn over, with an added jolt of condescending warmth and sweetness audiences loved five years earlier with Forrest Gump. And perhaps there is a version of this movie that could work. This isn't it, however. <laughs> Instead, Gary Marshall's The Other Sister is an offensive clash of tones, fantasy, and old people fears that I found flat-out embarrassing from beginning to end. It also warmed my heart a little. Despite the sea of bullshit at play in The Other Sister, and despite the film's sluggish pacing and bloated runtime, I have to admit it pulled my heartstrings now and then, particularly any time Hector Elizondo's musician-painter-Vietnam vet shows up to be Dennis's unofficial caretaker and best pal. But most of the movie is pretty rough to behold. A sense of genuine embarrassment, I know I've used that word already, but there's no better way to put it, kind of ruins any of the fun goofiness one might mine from the movie. Having said all that, I do feel like this is one of the best movies from the best year in cinematic history. End quote. Hmm. And I think this review is so spot on because while watching this movie, I, I, I did feel offended. I felt that it was gratuitous. I felt that it was making fun of the people who it was supposed to be celebrating. But there were also moments where I felt really emotionally compelled and I felt that my heart was warmed and I, I felt really invested in what was going on. So it's kind of got this weird double-edged sword vibe that I can't really explain. But I think this review kind of puts it very well. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting in the way that like, it's like there are moments where it's like, oh, this is kind of sweet, but I also feel weird about like, feeling like it's sweet because I can then like see a screenwriter in my head going, well, we have to do this. See, it's like, it, I, I don't know. There's like, it's, it's very weird. Well, I think it comes down to the fact that intellectually disabled people are just people and they yeah. do deserve romance and they do go through situations that everybody else goes through. Yeah. Like finding love and talking about sex and getting an apartment and getting a job. All of those things are perfectly legitimate. And the fact that the movie is willing to go there, I think is a is a plus for it, right? But I think the way it does it isn't necessarily the best. And I think there are definitely some minuses in terms of the way the acting is done and the way it's written and the way the jokes are handled. But like there there is a message behind this movie that is ultimately positive. And I think you do feel that when you watch it, even though you're also consciously aware of the fact that it's not done well. And that 
that statement though about what they tried to do this brings us into the legacy beyond 1999 we have a couple of like kind of funnier things to talk about in terms of like a Razzie nomination and things but we've started to see some str- I'm going to jump around for a second we've started to see some strides in allowing those with intellectual disabilities to represent themselves on screen most notably look to 2019's The Peanut Butter Falcon which starred Zach Gottsagen a young man in who in real life has Down syndrome who plays Zach a man who runs away from home to live out his dream as a professional wrestler. I haven't seen this movie yet. It is. It came out, I believe, towards the end of 2019, I think. And I just, for whatever reason, never got around to it. I, I mean, this is only one movie, but Gott Sagan appeared at the Academy Awards in 2020, right before all this shit happened, with his co-star Shia LaBeouf to introduce an award. That moment alone represents a massive step forward don't get me wrong we still have a lot of work to do in terms of inclusivity and things like that but this was a big step forward for some kind of representation in film and it gives me hope that maybe one day we will be able to see a film like the other sister that doesn't make fun of its characters but does show a positive relationship between people who are differently abled well, I think the big thing about Peanut Butter Falcon, too, is that they actually cast someone who actually does have an intellectual disability exactly. in the movie versus having someone play that, right? Like, watching this movie and doing all the research on the actors, and I saw that a couple of them had appearances on Law & Order SVU. There's actually an episode of Law & Order SVU from 2002 titled Competence where someone with Down syndrome is on the episode and she's the victim of a crime, but they actually got an actress with down syndrome to play that character. And that was back in 2002. And so that got me thinking, like, I wonder if the other sister would be better if they had cast it with people who are actually intellectually disabled versus having, you know, quote unquote, normal actors play those roles. Yeah. I think, I think the dialogue needs some work. I'm going to be totally honest there, but I think, the intent of what it was, I think, would have been absolutely way different. With that being said, there were a couple of things that were pretty funny in terms of the legacy of this. First off, we got to talk about Juliette Lewis was nominated for a Razzie for a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Supporting Actress for her performance. Man, we've covered two Golden Raz movies in a row. But I want to know, who do you think she lost to? Oh, God, it could be anybody. It could be anybody, Jared. Who have we talked about so far? Who she got lost nominated? that award to Dr. Christmas Jones, Denise Richards for The oh. World Is Not Enough. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Honestly, Christmas deserved it. Yeah. Actually, actually, I take that back. I, I take it back. I put this in the legacy section because Juliette Lewis's response to this question is kind of funny. So she's doing that. She has this piece in Vanity Fair in December of 2010 and the interviewer is asking her about her acting career, what people recognize her for, kind of what we talked about earlier. And she says, and then I did The Other Sister, which was the complete antithesis of a Mallory Knox, which was her character in Natural Born Killers. I'm always exploring duality, I guess. My own nature and in she that... She listens of... to Slipknot? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> my own nature and in that of my characters. The interviewer says, speaking of the other sister, has your opinion about it changed with hindsight? Are you like, come on, guys, it wasn't that bad? Or, Jesus, I should have stabbed my agent in the face just for giving me the script? 
And then there's a long pause. Holy shit. And Juliette Lewis says, I don't know what you're talking about. Interviewer, you didn't read the reviews? Lewis, I don't really read reviews. Interviewer, did you at least hear it was nominated for a Razzie? Lewis, I know it didn't get seen in a lot of theaters because there was a problem with the release, but I have gotten some of the best compliments from people who have rented it. Our hearts were in that movie. It's all because of Gary Marshall. The other sister represents everything that Gary Marshall is. I have trouble believing that in 2010, 11 years after this movie came out, whether or not she'd read the reviews, that she hadn't thought critically about this choice at all. And finally, this isn't a funny thing, but Gary Marshall made some better films after this one, for sure. Most notably, he made The Prince's Diaries in 2001, which... I mean, Jared, let's be honest, he could have made any movie after this one and it would have been better than this one. Well, that's what everybody thought about Exit to Eden, and then he made this and Dear God, so here we are. See, this is a fair point, and this is why we bring you on, because we like to have a fair and balanced discussion on this podcast. So, he made The Prince's Diaries in 2001, and its sequel, The Prince's Diaries Royal Engagement in 2004, and he went on to make an unofficial trilogy of holiday films... Not not for me, but th- these movies made a shit ton of money at the box office, so who am I to speak? Uh, he made Valentine's Day, New Year's Day, and Mother's Day, which was his final film before passing away in July of 2016. Rest so, in peace, Gary. He definitely left, despite some bad movies, he still released a lot of really good ones. So, um, I understand you have a burning question, though. What is it? I have three burning questions. For you, Jared. The first one is how. <laughs> and what's the second question? The second question is why. <laughs> well, I feel like the episode kind of laid it out, but also I understand why we're still asking the question. Okay. The third question is Do you think this movie was actually considered progressive for 1999? Because we have to remember that the conversation we're having right now has the benefit of 20 years of hindsight. That's true. So do you think at the time that this movie came out, it was actually considered progressive? At the time, I guarantee you somebody thought that it was progressive. Absolutely. That guy from the San Francisco Examiner. Yes. I guarantee that there were certain people... I feel like it probably got lost in the mix because when you had a bad movie back then, if if you were a studio head and you had a bad movie, you couldn't just go, you couldn't have somebody go up on social media and write, wow, that was crap. And then get flooded with a bunch of people writing how it's the worst thing they've ever seen, this and that. You could just release it in less theaters and not See- talk about it. That's a great point, because I think if this movie came out next weekend, Twitter would have a field day, and it would be pulled. Yeah. That's honestly... 150% true. Yes. Probably rightfully so, but I think that's how it would go. Yeah. So maybe maybe back then it was a little bit progressive. I would say It that was new. It was new. I think that the creator's hearts were in the right place, but I don't think it hit anything that it was trying to do it had a couple heartwarming moments sure but Notting Hill this is not it is not a this is not like a this is definitely a film that I I mean it swung for the fences and I will give 
the creators that for trying to take a risk, but also why? Sometimes when you swing for the fences, you get a strike. Yeah, this was definitely a strike. And I understand wanting to try and... It's like, I understand the idea of wanting to be representative and do that. 100%. But the way that it was approached was not great. And I think that... I, I think it raises the question of if the dialogue was rewritten and if they actually did cast actors and actresses that were um, that had an intellectual disability, if it would be a better film, a different kind of film. And I think it would. I think it would have been... Um, I think it would have definitely been much more progressive in that sense. I feel like in 99, it probably was considered progressive, but it just, it didn't work. Well, so, so, so your comment about the dialogue actually kind of leads into my reactions. So yeah. So what did you like and dislike? That point, right. So I'm going to start with dislikes kind of, because really my reaction is I don't know how to feel right. Like I, I think it's weird that this movie is billed as a romantic comedy. Because it's not exactly funny if you take away the mental disability of the characters. And that's a hard thing to wrap your head around, right? Like, it's hard to tell if you're laughing at the characters or if you're laughing with the characters. Yeah. Which is especially interesting because one of the first things that Carla tells you is that she doesn't like to be laughed at. And then it feels like this whole movie is laughing at her. True. And part of that is the writing. Right? Because the movie doesn't really feel like it has jokes in the traditional sense of the word joke or particularly funny situations. It, it, it's tricky because one of the common ways to set up a comedy is to tell a fish out of water story, right? And in a fish out of water story, the humor comes from watching someone deal with an uncomfortable or unfamiliar situation. But in the case of this movie, the fish is a mentally challenged person and the water is normal society. And so if that's the case, it's hard to find that funny. Yeah, like... You know what I mean? So a perfect fish-out-of-water comedy story is Elf. A guy... Yeah, exactly. A, somebody from the North Pole who lives with Santa and the elves and comes to see his dad in New York. So he's in the real world for the first time. And that's, like, that's That's funny. exactly right. But Another one that I love, The Black Knight with Martin Lawrence. Fucking great fish-out-of-water story. You take... Martin Lawrence is like a Jets fan from the hood, and you transport him back into medieval times. It's fucking fantastic. <laughs> it's a great movie. That's a, that sounds right? funny, yeah. And so, like, that's a good situation for comedy. And so I feel like they're trying to do that in this movie, but it's like, that makes me feel like, are the things, are they saying things that they think are funny? Like, in Superbad, the characters are saying shit that's funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, in this movie, it's like, are they saying something that they think is funny or are they saying something that they think is normal, but because they have an intellectual disability, it's actually funny within that context, but they don't know that it's funny because they have the intellectual disability, but we do because we don't, you see what I'm saying? So there's like this weird, yeah. like there's this weird layer of, of like, am I supposed to think that's funny or am I supposed to think that that's like genuine and heartfelt and, and, and an actual thought from this person? And, and it, I think that is what made the movie so difficult for me to watch ultimately. So yeah. I, I'm leaning towards the dislike side overwhelmingly because of that. Definitely. Me too. A couple of things that I did like though, $500 a month for rent in San Francisco. <laughs> I laughed at that too. I was like, fuck you. That's I'd amazing. I'd like that even more if it was true. <laughs> 
I'd love that if that were real. So I like that. And I also like the emphasis on marching bands, particularly the idea of getting down to some trombones. Because as a trombone player myself, I think that's a pretty good idea. Very fair. What about you, man? Got it. So, yeah, I mean, you said everything that I wanted to say. I just, I feel like the dial. My biggest thing was not just with the story itself, but with the dialogue and the way in which we're. It's not clear what the movie. I mean, there's a number of things. It's not clear what the movie wants to do. Are we supposed to laugh with her or are we supposed to laugh at her? Because it feels like a lot of the time we're laughing at her and at Danny. It sounds like a movie studio writer or an executive is saying something like hmm what would a mentally disabled person say hmm ah they'd probably say that they'd they'd make a joke like a child right okay yeah write that down like it doesn't feel like there's really any weight given to the characters and given to what they are it's just it it falls into what you were talking about earlier which is that like childlike innocent simple character yes and it's just like if you're gonna do a movie like this and you're really gonna try to make this attempt i i wouldn't but if you're going to the dialogue has to be better it's gotta like it's it's gotta not make fun of them that was just my biggest thing with this i didn't feel like laughing a ton i was just kind of watching this movie like i feel bad for the characters because of the way that it was made there's there's a thing where like like if kids say something inappropriate it's funny because they're a kid and they're not supposed to say that exactly right versus like a movie like good boys where kids are saying intentionally like raunchy shit you know what i mean there's kind of this innocence like oh they said something that they they didn't know what they said and that's kind of funny versus like they know exactly what they said and that's funny so, like, the vibe of this movie is is very much that first one of, like, oh, they don't know what they're saying. That's so funny. And that's not the tone that it should have, in my opinion. I think that's that's what makes it feel, like, skeevy. I, I completely agree. I just, bottom line, I don't like the way it was written. I don't like that it makes fun of the characters, essentially. Even if it wasn't made with that intention... The problem is that's the final product, and that's what I saw, that's what many people clearly saw, and it just didn't work. The marching band thing I thought was kind of a funny little emphasis. Um, I did like in the moments where they did give them some, like, yeah, this is the thing I love, and this is kind of what I like. Um, I, I didn't understand the graduate references. I, I, I didn't really get that at all. I'm still very, I, I just don't think, I don't think the character development was good. I think Diane Keaton's character development is not very good. All of the characters are very one note, even though it did. And it's funny though, because a lot of great people were cast in this movie and it did lead like, this was Sarah Paulson's second movie and it led to her getting other things. And eventually down the road, many years later, that would get her to American horror story and American crime story. So like, there's certain things that happened for this movie when it was made that led to great art being made many years later. So for that, I'm like, okay, that's cool. But this movie as a whole, I just I didn't like it. I didn't think it was well I, done. I'm with you, man. And unfortunately, if you thought this movie was a bummer, just wait until next week. Yeah, next week. Because we're going to get to see Kate Beckinsale and Claire Dane spend 33 years in a Thai prison. Yeah, so next week's film is not necessarily cheery. 
Um, it's called Broke Down Palace, and it's exactly what Andrew said. You can find it wherever you stream your films. And uh, yeah, is there anything else we want to add to this? What's our conclusion on this? We just didn't like the movie, and we're kind of, but we also don't know if it's like, like what we're supposed to feel from it. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I don't. Life has no meaning. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that, I mean, we did it. We got through it about two hours. So, uh, thank you for hanging out with us and listening to this. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, please let us know, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, uh, email us at 1999 pod at gmail.com. And otherwise we'll see you next time for broke down palace. Be kind, rewind. We'll see you next time. Bye. Coming soon to theaters. My name is Alice Morano. My best friend forever is Darlene Davis. I mean, beautiful golden beaches. Ferg told us his brother spent a whole summer in Bangkok for like only 500 bucks. Time means freedom. What could be better than a country named after the exact thing we were looking for? It was intense, alive, beautiful. I'm Australian. Australian? Australian, you idiot. (laughs) Do you guys want to do anything tonight? Are you okay with this? Why would I care? He's cute. Go for it. You have no idea what you've ultimately sacrificed. He wants to take us to Hong Kong. I don't want to go to Hong Kong. Please? You go. Come on, how many times have I done this for you? Here's the deal. I'm going to fly ahead this afternoon, and then you two guys can come out there tomorrow. We can just kick back and have a good time. It'll be unreal. Narcotics. So somebody planted it on us. Darlene! I have the right to an attorney. Oh, yes, and right to one telephone call, too. You didn't sign anything, did you, Darlene? Told you I confessed. It appears that there is no Nick Parks. 33 years! Just let her go! catching these vile little drug smugglers and you keep defending them. You're like a lawyer? What exactly are you gonna I'm gonna do? try to get you both out of here. You wanna tell me about Nick Parks? The cops think the girls made him up. You were the one carrying the bag. Yeah, the bag you packed. First I thought it was Alice. Alice was never even alone with him. He's done it a hundred times and you're just 101. You did it, didn't you? You ruined my whole life! I didn't do it! Those girls have absolutely no chance of getting out of there. Guilty or not, they're guilty. They're gonna die if we don't do something. getting out.